Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in small, powerful doses from the most creative thinkers of our time. The Think Again podcast takes us far out of our comfort zone. We surprise some of the smartest people you know with ideas they're not prepared to discuss. I'm very happy today to be speaking with Senator Cory Booker of the state of New Jersey, the former mayor of Newark. His new book is a political memoir that's a call for unity, courage, and honesty in facing and fixing America's worst problems, poverty, gun violence, and mass incarceration. It's called United. Welcome to Think Again, Senator. Thank you very much. It's really good to be with you. I wanted to start by discussing a quote in your book about the difference between love and tolerance. You write, Tolerance is becoming accustomed to injustice. Love is becoming disturbed and activated by another's adverse condition. Tolerance crosses the street. Love confronts. Tolerance builds fences. Love opens doors. Tolerance breeds indifference. Love demands engagement. Tolerance couldn't care less. Love always cares more. In your book, you write about how, you know, after a very impressive educational career, you went to Stanford, you went to Yale Law School, you did a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, you basically had to start from ground zero. You went to Newark, you moved in across from Brick Towers apartment complex, which was a place dealing with a lot of crime and a lot of difficult problems, but also there was a lot of love and humanity there, and you basically had to learn how how to help from scratch. Yes. This is inspiring me to talk to you about a personal story that I don't talk about much. Like long, long ago, I taught in Brooklyn public schools and I was a younger man. I, I don't think I thought I was going to walk in and like fix everybody's life. But I did think I was, you know, I, I may have had visions from Dead Poets Society or something in my head. I was going to be standing on the desk and inspiring everyone about Shakespeare or whatever. Right. And I found myself in a totally culturally alien environment to anything I'd ever known where I was breaking up physical fights in my classroom. Right. And I sort of wonder, you know, what your experience has been like in terms of finding your way into that world after being a child of the suburbs. Well, I I definitely had my comeuppance in that environment. Literally, the moving in, I had things stolen out of my car and saw a level of drug dealing and violence that I just never witnessed before. And I had worked in inner cities. I'd worked for everywhere from East Harlem to East Palo Alto. Right. But it was overwhelming. And yet, you know, I have this saying that when you come to the end of all the light you know and you're about to step into the darkness, faith is knowing one of two things is going to happen. Either you'll find solid ground or the universe will send you people to teach you how to fly. And amazingly, I met the tenant leader of these low-income housing projects Miss Virginia Jones, who I write about a lot in the book and who was this curmudgeonly beautiful, wise, tough woman (laughs) who really, for me, didn't seem to have any tolerance and just challenged me in the beginning, pushed me away. There's this one moment where I write in the book, you know, you come from all this academic success. Right. And I felt like I was on an interview and I was failing in the interview. And I'm like thinking to myself, I don't fail interviews. <laughs> right, you right, know? right. So she really humbled me, broke me down, reconstituted me. What was powerful about this book was going back and interviewing people and finding out things I never knew before. So I chased down people that helped my family move into Harrington Park when they wouldn't let black families move in. But the aha moment I had about her was 
I did not know, and it really was very emotional when I found out that in those early days, when I was awash and challenging, I had some of the drug dealers in front of the building really come at me in very difficult ways and intimidating ways. But what I found out in interviewing was that she was defending me behind my back, right. telling people that I was her son after just a few meetings, but yet she never showed me that face. You know, I found a love in that community for me right. that it's the foundation of my, my political life. Right. Um, people there who nurtured me saw things in me that I didn't see in myself, but wouldn't give me a pass. They made me right. earn every inch of ground in those early days that I sort of gained in terms of trust and acceptance in that community. But uh, ultimately, they broke me down and built me back up into so much of the man that I am today. One of the books I read this year that was one of the most powerful was Ta-Nehisi Coates' yes. book, Between the World and Me, which I'm assuming you've read yes. too. Yeah. Yes. And I wanted to talk to you about that sure. because your book makes a very strong case, kind of a clarion call for unification, that unity. And Ta-Nehisi Coates' book like devastated me because basically, I mean, I've always felt this way. There are two Americas. I grew up in one. Maybe there are more than two Americas, but I grew up in you know a very affluent suburb of, of D.C. I'm white, and we have a very different reality that goes on for poor people in this country, uh, often people of color. And like I felt like Coates was saying in the book, you cannot understand. In the end, this divide is unbridgeable. There's a few books I read this and last year that were profound. His was definitely one of them. We are peers. And I see him as an agent of justice in this world. Yeah. I think that he and I have a similar urgency and a similar, uh, are offended deeply by the injustices that are allowed to persist in this country. But, you know, Cornel West, this person who I got this phrase from, he, he talks about being a prisoner of hope. Okay. And that hope is different than optimism. And I'm not sure how constructive sometimes optimism is. Because optimism is whether, it, no matter what, you're always going to be sun shining. Hey, we're going to get there, we're going to get there. But hope confronts, it sees the wretchedness right. of the world and doesn't apologize for it, doesn't sugarcoat it, and draws attention to it, but still hopes anyway. It's actually a response to the wretchedness and to despair. You can't have great hope without great despair. That's uncomfortable for some people to have them both living in you at the same time. And so for me, I have this belief in this country. I haven't given up on my radical hope for America. And as James Baldwin wrote, and I paraphrase him, he said, human history is, and Negro history is in particular, a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. He writes that as, as a sign of hope to people that right. after this very difficult book, The Fire Next Time, but he then suddenly in the end, he says, I know what I'm asking you is impossible, but impossible is the least we can demand. And so for people who might see all of this as impossible, I believe that, yes, human history is a testimony of the achievement of the impossible. Right. And that we have within us tremendous power. And you know what? I may never get there to know what it is to grow up as a transgender teen in the inner city because of my very different background. But that struggle to understand, that engagement in courageous empathy Right. is a powerful pathway that will reap benefits, not just for you or the person, but for all of us by you doing that struggle. I think the call that you're, you're making, you know, for people to take responsibility for all the problems of America as belonging to all Americans in a very, like, real, everyday kind of way, is a, a, you know, it's something that 
a lot of people are are, are hiding from. Right, and 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 so for me, and you and I are similar in the sense of our suburban upbringings. And what I try to highlight in this book is people who have nothing, but still find ways to give so much. Right. We often get caught up, in my opinion, in the state of sedentary agitation, as I say, where we're so upset about the world, <laughs> but we fail to do small things that can have profound impacts. Right. You know, I'm here today because one poor black kid in a segregated world with a mom that couldn't take care of him was a beneficiary of small acts of kindness. People wouldn't let him fail. That's my dad. Those names will never be written in history books, but I'm where I am right now because of those small acts of kindness that have reverberated to generations yet unborn. Right. And so Alice Walker says the most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. And we all have so much power that we don't use. And I think it's because of cynicism that I think is a toxic spiritual state. Cynicism is a refuge for cowards. While I agree with you that there is cowardice in cynicism, I think we should probably also see it as there is something happening in the cycle of history that has led to this situation, this feeling of powerlessness or of disconnectedness from other people. That oh, is, absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. and there are huge societal forces, I think, that are creating that despair I just, for those people who have the power to make a choice, right. which is that choice of will I accept things as they are or will I take responsibility for changing them? For, for those folks, I just want to tell you, I can't imagine, like tracing my history back now, seeing the slaves in my, in my past, I can't imagine being in a world where you think there's no way I can change this reality, but right. still trying to do something anyway. I think of the earliest labor organizers who had children in sweatshops and tried and failed like, with mobs that were hired to beat them with billy clubs and into submission, but yet they healed their wounds, got back together, and kept trying, and probably never saw the fruit of their labor. So we could all do more, and the simple thing I tell people about is like, there are tens of thousands of people on waiting lists right now for mentors, four hours a month. The Big Brothers and Big Sister alone have a long waiting list of struggling single moms trying to make it, who want their kids to have I mean, four hours a month is all it takes. All the data shows that it drives down their unsafe sexual practices, their involvement with police, drives up their achievement in school. So one kid, you can make that kind of difference in, but most of us would rather watch our favorite TV show, which is four hours a month or what have you. <laughs> right. And even now in New York, you can do online. There's something called iMentor. You can do it online. Right. And, and it still has a measured impact. Yet we complain about juvenile violence or kids being lost to drugs. When we have the power to do something about it, we may not transform the world, but I know as a son of a kid who people did give those four hours a month to, it, it can have an impact that you just don't imagine. So why aren't we doing more in this country? Why have we lost the sense of urgency we had during the World War II where my grandparents were having victory gardens and everybody was pitching in in this country doing something for the war effort. Right. Or the civil rights movement where people were leaving their homes. And, and I know it's more difficult. King gave this great speech at Stanford University where he talked about sometimes it's easier to leave Chicago and go down and march against Bull Connor than it is to stay in Chicago and try to help people get good housing and good food. It's a little more intractable in some ways. But, but I'm hoping in writing this book that I could live up to the challenges I put in there and that more of us can as well. You've inspired me with the mentoring idea, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. look into that. Uh, I appreciate you, I'm, I'm a mentor <laughs> to a kid now, and I didn't even go through a formal program. I just knew a mom, uh, Keandre is a beautiful young man, and we hang out, and it's fun. And I'm busy as anything, and I haven't seen him in about a, a few weeks, so he's probably mad at me, but, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, it's such an easy thing to do. 
I could go on like this all day, but I think we should get to the second part of the show, yeah, which this is, is where this, we... You've got me intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> now, in, yeah, in this part, the idea is that we depart from the typical interview situation with surprise. So okay. we don't know what the videos are going to be that we're going to okay, see. Do you know the video? Or do I, I do not. These no, are don't. past Big Think interviews. They're clips with experts in their fields, but they're picked by my producers, so yeah. they're a surprise. So this one is Jean McGonigal, the author of a book called Super Better, and I know her also as a uh, video game designer for like positive change in your life. Oh, wow. Use the plus one technique to make your friend's day a little better. Okay, let's see what we have here. Pick somebody in your life and you send them a message asking them how their day is going on a scale of one to 10. And it's very important that you ask them on a scale of one to 10. And then when you do get a reply, what you do is you immediately text back or write back and say, is there anything I can do to make that number plus one? Anything I could do to move you from a three to a four or from an eight to a nine? That little act of reciprocity, I'm willing to help you, you're willing to help me, and doing it regularly, you know, every day or a couple times a week, that firmly cements in somebody's mind the idea of you as an ally. Okay, so I completely believe that reciprocity and offering to do something nice for other people is a, is a good thing. Maybe this is a bit of cynicism on my part, but I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about standardizing that act in my life in that way. Right. And I also feel that there's something mercenary about the idea that you might want people to think of you as someone who reciprocates. Right. <laughs> right. So well, what, do you, what do you think? A lot I delight in about that. Okay. I'm not sure if I will standardize. I'm not sure if I'll follow that advice <laughs> about. But I think that the sentiment that I love about it is two things. One is I do believe that kindness is a, and love is a muscle. And you got to work it. And you got to think to yourself every day, what's one, one small thing I can do that a person can't say thank you to me? Or maybe I do it anonymously. And right. I think the more you do that, like I love on Martin Luther King Day, I tweet out often, tell me about your random acts of kindness. And I've got moving things that made me tear up. I've got things I now use and do. Like, hmm. you know, if you see somebody on military and come on the plane anonymously, send them free whatever. Say whatever the tab they run up, I'll take care of it. If you have the means to do that or if not, just send them a snack box or something. I try to just very, very conscious of making something a muscle because there are definitely things my parents taught me, both of us, I'm sure, that now we do without even thinking about it because sure. it's habits of our family that are good deeds. The second thing I like about what she said is the idea of just making sure you're tuned in to the people around you. I'm one of those people that get so caught up in my own drama right. that if I don't consciously tell myself, okay, wait a minute, how is my chief of staff doing right today? It's not all about me, we're a team, everybody's well-being is important. Right. So finding some way to like tune into like, how are you doing? Uh, besides the crazy questions that we ask that we really don't want to even answer to, <laughs> um, or, or we get into what I always call the sleep deficit competition, like, oh man, I got five hours of sleep, five hours, oh, I only got three hours of sleep. We, we always try to one-up each other about how we're doing. So I think that tuning into another person's heart in your circles is such a great thing to do. Right. And, and there are scientific studies that show that our kindness is a far more viral than we realize. Um, even our habits are far more viral. Like if, if right. you were around people, men who are hang out with other men who cheat and are unfaithful are more likely to be unfaithful. Right. Um, men who hang around with people who are really conscious of what they eat 
have better eating habits. Just look how we behave in traffic, you know, right. traffic jams. Yes. Right, right. But the, the thing the studies are now showing is that you don't just affect your circle, you affect the people in your circle and the people in their circle. Mm -hmm. So you have these, these multiple degrees of impact. So if everybody thought about themselves that I could be an engine of kindness or an engine of meanness, because we are more than we think we are. And just a subtle choice of manifest, you know, one of my favorite books is Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a powerful, and I paraphrase it, he goes, we who in the concentration camps remember those folks who shared their own piece of bread, their only piece of bread even though they themselves were hungry, who comforted others, you know, though they themselves were suffering. And it, they, he said it's a testimony to the greatest of all freedoms, the ability to choose your attitude in every given, any given set of circumstances. And that, that is a powerful choice just your attitude to, to walk into. And I saw it, I watched this with my dad as a kid who he would be in a checkout line, he would be sitting in a restaurant and just affirming the humanity and being kind and engaging and getting somebody to laugh. He may not have had in his early career money to tip the person really well, right. but just that spirit is a gift for somebody. While being rude and caught up in your own life and not realizing that person is making tipped wages, they're barely hanging on, they have a sick kid at home. Right. You know, so I just think that this idea of tuning out into others and trying to manifest that energy is, is an impactful way to live your life. I totally agree. In the interest of time, I think what we'll do, you know, there are two more clips that they gave us, but okay. I think we'll pick one. We've got a Rachel Dolezal-related one, and we've got your behavior creates your gender. So I'm going to leave it up to you. <laughs> which, <laughs> which one do you want to go with? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what e either of them. It's I like know. Picking, I don't either. Um, so I will pick, uh, let's see, I'll go to the top one. Those Even though I'm curious about my gender, but, <laughs> <laughs> Just but I'll, this, this one looks a lot safer. <laughs> All right. This is Clint Smith, who I actually had on this show. He's great. If being black ever gets too inconvenient, Rachel Dolezal can opt out. Rachel Dolezal, you know, while she might deeply love black culture, might, while she might deeply believe herself to be a participant in black social and cultural spaces, at the end of the day, she can opt out. People have been talking about this idea of transracial, comparing her to Caitlyn Jenner and saying someone can say that they were born feeling a woman. If they can make that choice, shouldn't someone still be able to make that choice around race? Rachel Dolezal, she can choose to not be black in a way that black people cannot choose to not be black. I can't get pulled over by a policeman and tell him, you know, I'm white today. So the way you should interact with me as a white person because that's how I identify. I can't do that. That's not a, a reality. I don't have the opportunity to or the, would ever want to opt in or out of, of my racial identity. And I think it brings up a larger conversation around what is race, which I think is an important conversation to have, because again, we have to recognize that race is largely a social construct, like it is not an actual real thing. I affirm everything he said, <laughs> but I think that the stuff he was talking about at the end was really where I was. So here I am in the United States Senate, battling on criminal justice reform. We have a deeply racially biased criminal justice reform. There's no difference between blacks and whites in using drugs. No difference between blacks and whites in selling drugs. In fact, young, some studies are showing young whites have a greater propensity to sell drugs. Hmm. But yet African Americans, Latinos, are much more likely to be arrested for drugs, almost four times more likely for blacks. And then when arrested, they get about a 20% longer sentence for the same crime. So here I'm just trying to fight these issues that are devastating urban communities. And this thing is like flashing out there. And that's fascinating. It's interesting conversation. But I almost think it's a distraction from the real racial issues going on. 
and the sharp, jagged, painful cutting issues that are still happening in America as a result of race. And interesting research about implicit racial bias, which is now right. being talked about by the head of FBI, by police directors, who are beginning to understand that even the deep implicit racial biases that we all have, you and me included, affect police interactions and how can we better control for that. And studies show that if you train police officers, you can control, not completely control, but you can deeply affect behavior when it comes to that. So of all the things on race that I want to be tackling, right, right. it's like this one woman who is presenting herself to the world as being black, to me just got way too much attention and too much focus. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a pretty widespread spread phenomenon, no. people wanting to cross no. you know, racial identity Well, if anything, lines. we come from a past where people did it the other way, where right. mixed-race African-Americans would try to pass so they could escape horrors and terrorism and violence and lack of opportunity. So, huh. so yeah. my parents told me stories about family members who, in fact, I write about one of the, I refer to it in an instance in the book about people disappearing. My grandfather wrote about it in his journal about people disappearing into the North and pretending to be white right. um, in order to escape lives of constricted opportunity. And that's fairly easy to understand. You know, yes. I don't have any problem understanding yes. why someone might do that under those circumstances. Yes, you know? yes. So it was one of those things where <laughs> there was national, if not global, fascination with this one woman. And if anything, it's part of me. And I don't understand why people might have are offended by it, but part of me just had sympathy. Like, what led her to that space? And right. almost want to like, I'm praying for you. I don't know what's going on, but you're definitely enduring a backlash now, probably disproportionate <laughs> to uh, what was going on. So I don't know what kind of hate letters she probably got or attacks or what have right, you. Right. Um, but I, I always worry when our country rises up and focuses so much attention on one person and some of the more important issues often get lost. In That's the, in one the of the weird aspects of social media, Absolutely. right? It rises these things up and, you know, this happened in proximity to the Caitlyn Jenner story as well. Yes. So suddenly we were all, someone could make that comparison and say, this is just like transgender, oh, which it no, obviously which is isn't. Yes. Yeah. Um, Senator Booker, it has been so great having you on Think Again today. No, I'm, I'm really happy to have this conversation. And, and, and actually, this was more fun than I thought, the showing, <laughs> showing up videos. So unfortunately, you won't be able to see William Shatner, who's going to be here later today. I, I, I know you're a big fan. I am agonizing. I'm a... a <laughs> over the fact that I'm missing Star Trek. It was such an important show to me growing up. <laughs> My father introduced me to it as a child, and we would watch episodes together and then talk about the values and the morals and the issues that were brought up, the contributions to culture that that show has made and, and the actors involved are on race relations, on igniting passions for science, technology, innovation, exploration, all of those things. It's been, I think it's one of the more important shows that's been on in, in the 60s and, and since. Yeah, we had George Takei here telling us that he tried to push for gay issues on that show and uh, Roddenberry wasn't ready for it. No. America wasn't ready for it. <laughs> uh, he's a beautiful man. I mean, and Leonard Newmore's passing last year. Uh, yeah. Very, very, very sad. Very sad. All right. Thanks again for being on the show. It's Thank been great you. talking to yeah, you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank right. you. All right, and that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Our theme song is by the Sphinx-like Breakmaster Cylinder. I want to thank everybody that has taken a minute or two to rate or review us on iTunes or Stitcher or elsewhere. And if you haven't had a chance to do that, it really means a lot to us and makes a big difference in terms of who hears the show. We'll be back next week with the amazing Amanda Palmer. I'll see you then. Thank you.